on the sample library front, no sample library is going to make you a great composer. And I get really peeved when um, when I see this is a solution for all of your compositional problems, you know. <laughs> Hey, it's Johnny from Soundtrack.Academy. I hope you're having a creative week wherever you are in the world. This week's guest is the wonderful Gunnar Debosi. Gunnar has scored some of the most challenging type of documentary subject matter that you're likely to come across as a composer. Projects like September Tapes, about the search for Osama Bin Laden in the wake of 9-11. Saving Face, about a plastic surgeon helping victims of acid attacks in Pakistan. And State of Control, where two documentary filmmakers become targets of the Chinese regime. I really wanted to interview Gunnard to find out exactly how he tackles documentaries that have such dramatic and emotional storylines. And I absolutely love how he describes his approach, which you'll hear in the episode. Gunnard also has some really interesting methods when it comes to his workflow. So this really is a must listen episode if you're still trying to find your flow and want to learn how to deeply connect with challenging subject matter. Three things I think you'll take away from this episode include number one, how to make your music become a character in a documentary. Number two, working with non-linear timelines and the challenge of last-minute edits that come with that. And number three, mixing as you go to inspire creativity in the composition process. All that and more is coming right up. But first, if you're not already subscribed to the free Soundtrack.Academy newsletter, just head on over to Soundtrack.Academy slash newsletter to sign up. That way I can keep you up to date with new podcast, video and article releases, and I'll send you two free ebooks, the media scoring guide, and also landing film scoring projects. And finally, a quick thank you to Gaza Laza, who left a review this week. They said, just listen to the latest podcast from Johnny at Soundtrack.Academy. The latest podcast with Stephen Malin was an invaluable source of information for anyone looking to work in the field of media composition. I first started listening to Johnny in January and find him a constant source of inspiration in my own career. Thoroughly recommend. Thanks so much, Gaza Laza, and to all of you that tune in to listen. I appreciate every one of you. Now let's get on with the show. Hey Gunnar, thank you so much for being on the show with me. Yeah, it's great to be here, thanks. So can we begin in your words with who you are and what you do? Uh, my name is Gunnar DeBosey. I'm a uh, film composer and a, I teach music production and film scoring. And I also produce quite a bit of music as well. I've been writing music for visual media and I call it visual media because it's morphed into so many different things outside of just film and television for probably the last, I'd say, 17 years. You know, I'm a, I'm a classically trained clarinetist who studied classical music for a really long time and ended up getting into film scoring just because uh, you're really by accident. And so that's kind of how I, I started out. You know, there was no plan to become a, 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 a film and television composer. It just sort of happened through a, a series of many different events, as often is the case in this business. So that's kind of how it, how it all sort of started rolling. You, you mentioned you do, um, you do lots of uh, some music production as well. Is that still specifically around instrumental music or, or do you, do you um, include popular, like pop tracks and songs and things in that as well? It's mostly inter- instrumental music uh, because that's mostly what I do. So it's a lot of hybrid electronic scoring. It's um, mostly centric around uh, music that I can make that then can be licensed for film and TV. I've also released a couple of albums on iTunes of just purely instrumental music. So I'm, I'm open to doing a lot of different things with vocalists and so forth, but I, I usually find myself working in the realm of instrumental music. So that's where I do probably 95% of my production work. And you mentioned that you, um, you classically trained clarinetist. Was the original goal that you were going to be a performing clarinetist? 
Yeah, so the original goal was, um, and this is after I'd been studying clarinet uh, for probably 10 years, was to go to university and do a four-year uh, program in performance and get, get a degree and then audition for symphony orchestras. And, and I just found that in that process, I, I just didn't have the temperament to do that. And I also had this budding interest in music technology that was really sort of driving me more towards that uh, experimental creation world versus the, uh, you know, the sort of Olympic athlete world of being a classical musician where you're essentially a technician playing music that somebody else wrote a really long time ago. And I, I just didn't find it, although I was good at it, I wasn't very interested in it. So it it sort of came through music technology that I got interested in film scoring. And, and, and so I took a, a side path, uh, dropping out of university a couple times and f- finally ending up at Berklee College of Music where things kind of really took off for me. And was it the, the, the film scoring course that you did at Berkeley? No, I, I studied music production and engineering. And um, when I was at Berkeley, you know, I, I was always playing in film scoring sessions as a musician. So I was on scholarship, so they would ask me, as part of your scholarship, you have to play in all the film scoring ensembles. So I actually got to play a lot of film music. Uh, some of it was really well written. Some of it was, of course, very student sort of project written. And uh, that's kind of where I first started working in film scoring, was at the school just as a musician, as a side musician, coming in and playing clarinet on sessions. And then how did you actually go about sort of learning the skills that you needed to do film music then? Oh, that's a, that's a long one. Um, <laughs> you know, when you're in music school, so I went to a traditional university the first time and uh, it didn't work out. I went to another traditional university where I studied performance clarinet with a member of the Cleveland Orchestra. So that was just an immersion in that whole world. And uh, then I, I got really disenchanted with with just practicing for no other reason to practice. And so when I went off to Berkeley, it was in 1996 where tape and desktop audio production, like desktop audio production was still pretty new. It was in its infancy at that time. And everybody was still recording to tape. So there was this very interesting dichotomous split at the time between people who worked more traditionally in music production and then folks like me who were being introduced to digital audio workstations and then going that direction. And I got really interested in being able to produce music on a, on a computer, on a desktop. And so that sort of started the whole process of getting interested by you know, uh, being in the lab all night, compressing one minute of video, which in 1997 took you 15 hours to do, and then scoring that in a DAW, uh, much like the way I work now, much like the way most of us work now. So there was this interesting period of hybridization where the old school of, this is a mixing desk in SSL and you have to work on this desk versus yeah, you can actually mix on, on a desktop audio workstation. So when I started taking those classes in the music synth department, I started realizing, well, I could really create a, a home studio that's completely built around this whole DAW-based universe. And so that's kind of where it all started, if that makes any sense. And at that point, were you focused on like music production? You were thinking about sort of mix engineering, or had you already thought you were going to use this technology as a composer? Well, I, I started experimenting uh, because I would go into the studio and I would mix things and I would record things. And then I would go back into the synth lab 
and I would record s- sketches that I was working on. I wouldn't really call myself a composer, but I guess I was. <laughs> at, at, I, I started messing around with a lot of synths, and I would record those. I would take those MIDI sessions and then record them live into Pro Tools, and then I would bring those Pro Tools sessions into the studios at Berkeley, and then I would re- record real live instrumentalists to those things and then cut them all up in Pro Tools and then put tracks together. So yeah, I, I guess it, it was all driven by technology initially. And I found, it, I found it to be a really cool place where I could control everything that I was doing, experiment and start really creating things that were more about what my musical personality sort of morphed into. So yeah, I, I guess it, it started as a, I started out as a producer that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to produce bands and I wanted to produce artists. And then uh, I, I went from there to writing my own stuff. And over a period of, of several years, I realized I really like writing music and that's kind of what I want to do. And I guess at, at that time, that would have been sort of the infancy of hybrid scoring as well. When you, you mentioned about creating things in the synth lab and then taking it into the studio and recording with extra musicians on top. Yeah. So did you feel you were kind of at the almost at the forefront of a lot of that at the, at the time, there was, there was very little resources for you to learn from. No, yeah, I was. So it, it, it was born out of frustration. Like I, I didn't have the kind of control I wanted to have in the studio environment because everything was recorded tape at the time. We had one Pro Tools cart that you would roll into the studio and plug into the patch bay. And so when I figured out I could record all this stuff and then take those sessions on a jazz drive at the time, it was like a one gigabyte storage medium. It cost 300 bucks into the synth lab that also had a jazz um, drive reader. I could then manipulate all that stuff offline and, and work in using, you know, uh, creating synth parts that would then blend with all this. And ultimately this became a piece that was picked for the, Berkeley does a production uh, CD every year. And so they picked one of these crazy hybrid pieces where I had a lot of live musicians and th- synth synth things going on at the same time, as a as a showcase at the school for for that. And but no, every nobody encouraged it. People weren't the only people who encouraged working like that were the synth professors. Like they were, like yeah, that's cool. They record stuff and then manipulate it in here. If you went to the MP&E department and told them what you were doing, they'd look at you cross-eyed and and they <laughs> you know, and and there was still that old school you know you know I, I mean not to sound crazy, but, you know, like the, the whole, this is how it's done. You, you know, you have a mm-hmm. Blumline microphone tree and you record these, you know, and it was just, yeah, it, it, it was so stilted to me. And this other world gave me so much flexibility to do more of what I wanted to do that I, I made it my own. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. I, I would mm-hmm. spend as much time as I could recording live. And then I would spend probably most of my time in the synthesis labs, putting it all together. Yeah, so I, I would say 1998. Yeah, this was when I was doing a lot of this stuff, and it's really the same way. It's not that dissimilar to how I work now. It, I mean, everything's better. The technology's better, of course. Computers, sample libraries, all that stuff. But that's that was sort of the genesis of that whole process, I guess. That was going to be my next question. How much of that early experience sort of influences your current process, and do you feel that you know as the world has moved more towards in the box? everything in the box creation and mixing and everything. Do you think there's anything that's, that's been lost that the new generation of up and coming composers that you teach are missing because they don't understand the, the earlier process? 
Yeah. Oh, God, that's a big question. Um, <laughs> well, you know, there's something to be said for having to being a classically trained musician and having that background. I mean, that is just from a knowledge point of view, you just have so many different things you can reference in your brain um, that a lot of people these days don't really, they don't understand even what the nomenclature is as it relates to past processes. And I know I'm getting really esoteric with this, but I find it hopeful and, and totally discouraging at the same time as an educator, because I'm, I'm working with young adults that don't have the same, unless they come from a, a, a very schooled background or they come from a place where the public school systems were great and they got a great music education, they, they don't have the tactile sense of music that I think I had growing up or the tactile sense of music is different. You know, it's now making beats, but not really contextualizing how that all works within the broader structure of music, you know, until people have to say, well, this is how the Purdy shuffle fits into R&B music and then making beats sort of surrounding all of that. So there, there's like a broad sort of, there, there are people, of course, or young people who know tons about, tons of, know a lot about music, but there's also sort of a big space where that infancy of working almost completely in an analog way where you're actually playing music on an instrument, that's changing a lot. And so, yeah, I think some of it's been lost. But then again, I, I don't know, that, that makes me sound old and dated and weird <laughs> whenever I talk like that, uh, because I'm always consistently surprised, you know, uh, by what people are bringing into, um, you know, my classes as students working on music. So yeah, that's it. I, I think there is something, I think there's a lot to be gained by the technology, but I wish people knew where the technology had come from. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of wish they knew a little bit more of how easy it is to make music now, mm-hmm. how easy it is <laughs> yeah. to produce me. I mean, people are like, this is so hard. I don't know how to do this. I'm like, this is so easy. I mean, when, yeah. I, when I first started, it was you had to book studio time and you had, if you used the tape too many times, you had to throw it in the, in the bin, you know? Um, now it's just, oh, how much hard drive space do I have and how much processing power do I have? And it's such an easy world for me. Um, so I, I get, I get a little, which makes it very transparent. It's easy to create now because you can, you want to create something, you turn everything on and you just do it. Um, and from my perspective, I'm so grateful that I can do that. I don't take any of it for granted. There's another thing that you mentioned that, um, that sort of resonated with me with the, the different types of students, how you have the, the, the beat makers and then also the people who've come from sort of complete classical backgrounds. And I, I found that teaching in the university setting on sort of media courses and and media production courses. The vast majority of backgrounds you have, you have people that are absolute experts in classical and traditional and orchestration and the people who are absolute experts in production. And somehow you have to have to pull both of them together and put them both on the same, on a certain path. Yeah. And I, I find that the, you know, the problem with the classical, taking a classically trained musician composer and throwing them into the DAW environment, they have a hard time understanding that there are no rules to MIDI production. It's a very production-driven environment where you have to make stuff sound amazing. Um, And sometimes I find the students that don't have that background, who've been working more in just pure music tech, are actually more open to to manipulating things in a a more non-traditional way and and actually having better outcomes than Mm -hmm. some of the classically trained musicians who know a lot 
especially compositional students who seem to know a lot, but have a really hard time bridging the gap between, you know, manuscript paper and a, and a doll workstation. I don't know if you if you found the same, but um, I know in more recently, well, recently, the last kind of five to eight years, maybe, there's the, the kind of big shift in in students that are coming in, you know, traditionally it was very much electric and like electronic music and classical music, but now mm -hmm. there are the hybrid students who come in, they don't know how to read music, they don't really know much about orchestration, and yet they are composing in an orchestral style, and that's the style they, they love composing in. They're, they're amazing at it. It's that kind of interesting yeah. blend of students that are coming through now. Yeah, well, I mean, it is. I mean, and I always, not being a formally trained composer myself, I connect really well with those students. Yeah. Um, the ones who, who just want to go at it, uh, because they don't have any biases, you know, um, so they can just work in a, in a, in a framework that is completely designed, uh, for non-traditional music people, because that's mm -hmm. what this really is. Uh, that's what we're, we're sort of going into now. Um, and, and with sample libraries all being tempered to the same key, you know, concert pitch, whatever, uh, no transposition needed. Yeah. You can just, they sit down and they love it. Yeah. And 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 often not having any of those weird biases that you get when you're a classical musician makes it possible for you to create things that maybe somebody more traditionally schooled is not going to necessarily think about if 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 that makes any sense. Totally, totally. But then like likewise the having some of the traditional abilities to overcome problems when you encounter them, like problems yeah. in the sound. It's it's, yeah. it's it's also a really useful thing to have. Yeah, no, I I I I would not, I'm not trying to eschew, yeah, the, the old world of classical music is, you know, whatever, because I'm from that world. But yeah, having the, the, the compositional ability to solve compositional problems or to understand like where French horns should be in an arrangement is, is such an essential piece of that. It's, it's a weird thing. Like I was playing the clarinet again for this last album that should be up in a few weeks that I did. And I, I was I was thinking like this is where I'm from, as a you know like this is the neighborhood I'm from. I'm from the the clarinet neighborhood, and and it's odd to me. It always feels like I'm coming out of retirement whenever <laughs> I pick that instrument up and play it, simply because so much of my world is the you know electronic stuff and sample libraries and all that 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 I often forget. Yeah, you're from you're from this neighborhood, so you should you should go back and visit it sometimes. I, I have the same feeling on saxophone, except normally I pick it up and I'm just depressed at how much I've forgotten. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you, yeah. You have to, uh, you know, I had to practice to record. I had to actually like take the horn out and put it together and play it for a few weeks before I felt good about recording with it again. Um, but that's you know, but that's the skill, that's the craft of being a musician, and I think that's. That's the key thing that I think's missing with a lot of people who are getting into the whole world of, well, if I, you know, buy $12,000 of the sample libraries, I'll be a composer. <laughs> and I'm like, no, if you can take the stock patches in Logic that come with the software and you can make them sound good and write some decent music, then you're a composer, um, I, I, you know. The, the, the sample libraries don't make the composer, they just make whatever creative person is there more creative and, and more able to express who they are. So that's a really, really great statement there. I actually love that. 
Okay, let's let's move topic a little bit. Can you tell me about the your sorry how you first got involved in filming? What was your first project that you worked on, and how did you go about finding that project? Okay, it was a film called The September Tapes, which was the first Osama bin Laden movie, The Hunt for Osama bin Laden, and it was a, a guerrilla production shot. Uh, some of it was shot in Afghanistan uh, right after 9/11, like within I think a year and a half. A, wow. a skeleton film crew went over there, shot this crazy movie. And um, I was, I had just moved out to California. I was just ready. I was going to move out to California. I had a, a horrible um, breakup, you know, t- classic artist story. You know, she left me and I was depressed and sad. And uh, at the time I was playing, I started playing Duduke along with clarinet, along with all the other weird synth stuff I was doing. And I had, just played the year before on an album a friend of mine had produced where I was playing clarinet and Duke, and we were chopping it all up and whatever. And watching him work sort of gave me this idea of folding these two instruments into some project eventually, which became this film score. And so I, I uh, was online, you know, all my, all my professors said, you'll never get a job in film music if you look for a job online. So I went, on, I went online and I found this weird little listing on entertainmentcareers.net that said, looking for Middle Eastern music uh, to be used in film, potential for pay. I mean, it looked very sketchy, you know, but I, <laughs> but I sent him a CD, a CD. I mean, this is how long ago we're talking, 2002, 2003, somewhere around there. And a few months later, I was living in Mountain View, California, which is in Northern California. And and I got this call from this editor who said to me, hey, dude, we've got your music in the cut and it's working out well. And I had no idea what this guy was talking about. I mean, that, that's <laughs> literally how the conversation began. I was like, what? And um, he said, yeah, you sent us the CD and we put, you know, I, I loaded it into the Advid and we just started dropping tracks in and the director really likes your stuff. And this is, you know, that ad I sent that CD to, so, which I've sent 400 CDs out at this point. So I'd kind of <laughs> forgotten who it was. So I was, while we were chatting, I was like, who is this guy? What is this in reference to? Um, and he said, what's your address? <laughs> I said, I gave him the address. And uh, he sent me this box of VHS tapes uh, that was the actual uh, assembly cut of the film. And uh, I, you know, I was, I was uh, living on a friend's couch and I had my, my DAW station set up on his kitchen table. <laughs> and uh, I had the, you know, the TV and the VCR and the tapes. And I, and I, and I put the first tape in and it was kind of cool. The first thing I'd heard was my music synced to visuals. And I'd never heard that before. Nice. Uh, so that was, you know, I was like, wow, this is neat. And I remember thinking, this is the this is the craziest movie I've ever seen. Like this movie is really crazy. And I'm not talking about necessarily the quality of the story or anything, just where it was shot, how it was shot. Um, and I thought this is gonna go somewhere. Anyway, so that, uh, you know, of course the musician's story, I borrowed a van, my friend's van, he was moving to Singapore. I drove the van down to LA with all my gear uh, crashed on another friend's couch and then met the filmmakers and, and then started working on the film. Amazing. And I mean, 
looking through your your credits, particularly on like IMDb, for example, a lot of the 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 work you've done is in documentary. Yeah, and a lot of it yeah. is either um, quite not political or quite difficult subject matter. I mean, A Girl yeah. in the River, State of Control, Father's Kingdom, Secret Fatwa, they're all uh, quite a few yeah. Middle Eastern ones in there, but also quite a lot. Um, uh, yeah, difficult subject matter. Yeah. How, I mean, how do you go about approaching that type of content? And as a kind of just addendum to that question, I mean, as a as a first project as well to take on something with such challenging yeah. subject matter, how, do you, how has your process changed? I'd be interested to know too. Yeah, so from a technical point of view, the first project was very difficult because I had no video capture. Um, so I just, I would have, to, I would literally hit play on the VCR and then record on the DAW at the same time. Wow. And 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 score it that way. I, it's embarrassing to admit that, but that's how the first project <laughs> went. And it turned out great. I mean, that was the weird part. Anyway, <laughs> September Tapes was a hybrid document. A lot of people thought it was a documentary, but it wasn't. It starred uh, a British actor named George Khalil, who was in a show, uh, Holby City, I believe, which oh, was yeah. pretty popular back in the day. <laughs> and he was also in Band of Brothers. The, the backstory to the film, though, is of very Hearts of Darkness, extraordinarily, uh, dare I say, lurid tale of just weirdness. I mean, that's, that's a whole nother podcast. But um, anyway, uh, so... I, the subject matter was really, really dark. Uh, and because I was playing so much music from that part of the world at the time, it just sort of worked that I have always loved documentaries. As a kid, I would just, I watched documentaries as a kid, which was really weird. <laughs> so the fact that this was a narrative shot in this sort of, they, they called it the Osama Witch Project, kind of a parody on the Blair Witch Project. Okay. Because it was shot in this sort of verite style, you know, on the fly on the wall kind of seat of the pants way. So the style of the filmmaking was really rough hewn. And um, it was so realistic that it, it, to me, I like reality. I'm a reality person in terms of uh, filmmaking and stories. And so how has it changed? I think... You know, Saving Face, for example, was sort of the the first documentary I did that won an Academy Award. And it was the the one that really sort of, to me, was the penultimate, or I guess the ultimate expression of where I had gone scoring-wise within that genre. So, you know, by the time I did Saving Face, I knew what I was doing uh, as a film composer. And that, that was sort of, you know, I didn't watch the movie because it, it, that many times because it was so hard to watch, but I watched mm -hmm. it a few times and then I had it in my head. And then a lot of the music I wrote offline. And then I would, you know, open the film back up and take a look at different scenes and then work towards crafting the, the, um, the, the cues or the pieces of music to each scene. It's really, it's interesting to hear your, your process, which I'd like to talk a little bit more about uh, a bit later on as well. But I guess my... I guess the the question about subject matter, yeah, for me is kind of what intention do you go in with the music? What are you what are you trying to do with the music on in the movie in the scenes? What's the aim? I guess. Well, you know, intention is everything. So I, I kind of view these films as finding me in a weird way. Um, 
based on what I do and the music that I do and how I do it. So when I watch a scene like Saving Face, for example, um, when I was working on that, it's all emotionally driven for me. You know, it's not about cuts. It's about finding the intuitive tempo of what is happening, but also finding the sort of parallel narrative that, that makes that story not necessarily work better because it's such a visual film. It doesn't really need much. It needs more of a emotional quality to it that can sort of push the the different sides of that emotional narrative. So I'm always looking for, I'm always listening for things that kind of can bring out a thought or a line of dialogue or an expression that somebody has that makes that more impactful without overwhelming that 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 space that that character's in. So, so I have to be a character in the documentary and I have to figure out a way to sort of whisper around what's happening. Um, and so I try to do that in, in, you know, documentary film scoring is different in that it's, it's more like writing chamber music mostly versus big orchestral music. So if there's, a, uh, if there's an analogy between uh, how is it different? Well, you're working with a lot of talking mm-hmm. and, and that can sometimes be really difficult um, to work with if the visuals aren't so compelling. In the case of Saving Face, you had both. You had amazing stories and amazing visuals. So it was actually quite easy to score because you had all of these different things that you could work with. Um, versus uh, the first HBO doc I did, Booth Gardner, you know, that was harder because it was just this older guy who had Parkinson's disease, you know, and, and how do you make that work? Uh, again, you have to look at the emotional qualities of, of, of what that individual's processing or going through in order to convert that somehow into some sort of musical narrative that doesn't overwhelm that. So I'm, I'm, always, I'm always just sitting and watching and thinking a lot. And then I've got the workstation open and I'll either start by just, you know, looking for a sound or or mixing something. I'm a big fan of pre-mixing. Like I never use a dry sound in the DAW. Um, I always pre-mix stuff. And then, and then I just start improvising to the scene until something starts to work. And that's for, for more scenes that don't have as much movement. For scenes that have more movement, they're more planned and it's more sort of rhythmically driven. But most of what I'm looking for is that, that moment, that moment of sort of recitative where I can be there with the subject matter and, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm there in that space. So it's a little abstract way of describing it, but that's the best way I think I can describe what that process is. You kind of get so in, inside it and so involved in it that the music that you end up getting is just what feels natural to you to work yeah. with that scene. With, you're not trying to, are you sort of not trying to push it in any kind of direction? It's just what you think feels natural there. Yeah, exactly. It's coming from the the scene is directing me as to what it needs. I'm not mm-hmm. coming to the project going, I'm going to write this music for this. You know, <laughs> I, 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 I look at what the movie's telling me, you know, the movie is the conductor mm-hmm. and, and in some ways the movie's the composer, you know, the, the movie has a way of speaking that you use, you know, you use what the movie's saying as it, as, as how it should be scored, you know, and I try to let my agendas go, you know, I, I try to not bring as my agendas to that process. Because um, I find that when I do, I get, that's when it becomes difficult. You know, when I'm not listening to the director and I'm, and I'm saying, I'm gonna think I'm gonna try this. 
which isn't a bad thing because you have to do that. But sometimes I'll deliberately go in a, in a very wrong direction, <laughs> score, score five cues and have them all rejected and then have to start over again. So I, I try to let go of my own biases as much as I can. And when you say you, you try and remove, get to get rid of your own agenda and your own biases, does that, does that include um, taking an angle on, the, on the, the documentary as well? Like, you know, trying to avoid portraying a oh, yeah. good guy and a bad guy or anything like that? Yeah, well, a classic example, and I'm you saving face, was, you know, I was playing a lot of Duduk, right? Well, Duduk is synonymous with Middle Eastern music, mm-hmm. but the music of Pakistan is different than the music of India. You know, it's different. It uses mm-hmm. similar instruments, but it's different. And so the first pass of saving face, my agenda was to use harmonium and Duduk and all this stuff. And the first thing the director said is, now, I don't want this to sound like we're in, you know, we're in Gladiator. You know, that's not what this <laughs> is. And so I, I had to research, you know, news rot and and Pakistan folk music and 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 sort of going at it from that angle, and really learning as much as I could about that stuff before I sort of started scoring it. So my agenda walking into things is is very um, can be very dangerous, particularly if it's if it's worked for another movie. You know, it's not necessarily going to work for the next movie, even if the movie is in a similar solar system in terms of place. Mm-hmm. So there are these nuances, there are these differences that each movie has that they have to be pretty, they have to be approached in a very unique way, if that makes sense. So, so expanding a little bit on your on your process, then you mentioned a bit about finding sounds and sort of pre-mixing and stuff. But when you first get a new project, what's the first thing that you do? Well, I, you know, I, I, I get terrified and scared. Um, <laughs> that's my first fear is a, is a great motivator. Well, when I first started scoring, it was always other people's music that I was trying to tempt to. Now it's more okay. of my music that I've given the director and they like certain pieces and they say, we like this, we like that. So of course, when I hear my own music in an in a assembly cut, I'm happy because I know that at least they like what I'm doing as a composer and that this isn't gonna be this insurmountable hurdle that I have to sort of jump through. Um, I look, I try to find the parts of the movie that are not, if they're using temp tracks that aren't mine, I go to those first because I find those to be the most the most challenging. Um, I, and I watch those scenes. You know, like for example, I'm writing a, a score right now that's using almost all guitars because it's set in the South in the southern part of America. So it's this sort of weird Appalachian bluegrass kind of feel. <laughs> and, and, and that means that I have, to, I have to research and listen to a lot of music like that. I have to write a lot of sketches. So I'll watch the film, but during, during post-production, the early part of post-production, I'll figure out what the vibe is and then I won't even score to picture. I'll just try to write sketches that capture whatever the essence of how the film's gonna sound. And then those sketches become cues in the movie. You know, I'll send those sketches to the director and, you know, I'll email them terrified because I don't know if the director's going to say, what are, what are you thinking? You know, what, you're, you're an idiot. Or they're going to say, that's awesome. Uh, and, and more often than not, it's been working out where it's been, oh, that's really great. Let's go in that direction. So those sketches... You, they're not too picture. Are they timed to anything, or is it purely just free form writing, just to get a, like an overture in a way? 
Yeah, no, it's totally freeform overture style writing. Um, you know, the goal of the, of, to me, the goal of the composer is to really, at the end of the day, write really great music that works with picture. And I try not to get too hung up on the cut uh, until I actually have to, which mm -hmm. is during fine cut. So I, um, yeah, I'll just write sketches based on, and, and you know, often what I'll do is I'll watch the film, I'll take a walk outside uh, down to the ocean, and I'll come up with an idea and I'll have to hop in an Uber and get back to my house as fast as possible so I can then write those sketches out or I'll sing those sketches into my iPhone. You know, I'll just record like a memo. And yeah, so that's, I mean, it often happens away from the studio. That's where a lot of those ideas happen. And do you, do you kind of map out sort of themes you might need before you get to those sketches or do you, are you just aiming for like one, one key idea or what? I'm aiming for a sound of the film and that's usually a couple of different sketches. So the process is actually quite disorganized, like on the front end, it's just a big mess. And then what happens, usually a couple of weeks in, I have all the sketches, they've all been, the, the, the major thematic ideas everybody's resonating with. So the film editor's resonating with them, the director's resonating with them and everybody's on board. Then I have to go back and reorganize everything. And I really then start the process of writing the score for the film based on those ideas. And those ideas, are they, um, I guess what I'm, what I'm trying to get to, get at, are, are they based around sort of characters in the movie or moods for the movie? Do you actually have a plan for that? Or is it just purely the, the music that you feel speaks to you from that movie? Well, I, I try to, I, I don't get too like, I, the movie is, of course, character-driven, you know, so mm -hmm. there are, there's, but it's not so um, specific in that way. You know, it's more like, what, okay, what's the ambience? Where is this thing being shot? Like, mm -hmm. where is, what are the surroundings like? What's the cinematography like? So documentaries are becoming a lot more cinematic, which yeah. is allowing you to really write a score that's more kind of bigger and has more of those timbres of space. So you're not kind of focused on this completely intimate, uh, sort of cellular kind of thing where you're working with one person talking at a camera. So now that they're more cinematic, um, I, I, I get a little bit more thematic about things. Mm -hmm. But then again, it depends on the film. You know, if the theme could be some kind of subject matter, it could be a true crime subject matter, like murder or something, that becomes one of the themes. You know, the overall narrative arc has its own theme. And then you get into different characters and what's happening. And then it, that those have their own themes as well. Yeah. Great. And then it's a case of basically arranging them then to fit the picture at the, at the uh, edit stage. Yeah. And, that, and that's the really challenging part. Um, <laughs> when you start scoring a picture, you know, the problem with nonlinear editing, not that it's problematic. I mean, it's how I make a living, but it, you know, they change the cut all the time. I mean, yeah. you'll go to the mix and the cut will be different. So you're in your <laughs> you're in your hotel room in Pro Tools with the master timeline of the film. So that's a technical thing where I don't write the music in Pro Tools, but I deliver it in Pro Tools. And you're actually, you know, you, I'm you know I'm working with a music editor, or I'm doing it in the hotel room, sort of making that scene work based on <laughs> what was happening on the stage earlier that day. You know, where the director's like, yeah, can you add a can you add a string section? And you're at the mix, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll just bring the orchestra in and we'll record it right now. And you know, <laughs> so so you have to always you have to have kind of a fly's eye. Um, you have to have a million little eyes 
that can spot these things before they happen. Um, because it, it gets so complicated. Because people are just waiting until, the last, and I mean, literally, until they send the film to Netflix, they're changing things. Or yeah. wherever it's going, Amazon or Vimeo or YouTube or whatever. I mean, it's always being, they're always messing with it. And, that, mm-hmm. and you know, I don't think the visual people really understand the kind of sheer hell that that puts people like us through, you know, yeah. when doing that. They don't, they don't yeah. do that. It's not malicious from them. It's just like for them taking out half a second. It's like I've taken out half a second. Can you not just it's do a, the same with the music? <laughs> yeah, it's no big deal, right? And, chop and, it out. and you, yeah, just just and then if you're not careful, they let the film editor chop your score up, <laughs> and and you have the worst music edits. And then everybody who's watching the film in the film business will say, "What did you? What were you doing score wise there?" Yeah. And it's like it's not me. It was you know. And then that becomes a whole complicated discussion. Yeah. So you mentioned that you um, you use. Pro Tools for, for delivery at the end. But what, what are the, can you tell us a bit about your production process? What kind of tools, what equipment do you use, software or hardware, and which, any go-to samples that your absolute favorite or anything like that? Well, okay, um, on the sample library front, no sample library is gonna make you a great composer. And I get really peeved when, um, <laughs> When I see this is a solution for all of your compositional problems, you know, um, I, and that's kind of how I feel like a lot of sample libraries are selling themselves right now. And, um, yeah, yeah. you know, and, 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 and I don't, I don't want to not get an endorsement someday by anybody, but, um, <laughs> you know, I use a whole bunch of different libraries, uh, because they all work differently. I have my favorites for certain things. Um, but like, for example, for strings, I'm using mostly Vienna. Uh, for strings, and I'm working in Logic. I use, you know, I, I, I mean, Omnispheres, Cinematic Guitars, Vienna, a bunch of other things. I use samplers a lot, so I record a lot of things and I blend those into the score. The production process, yeah. So it's it's mo- it's done. It started in Digital Performer. And I occasionally go back to Digital Performer and work in that because there are some things that Digital Performer does that other DAWs don't do mm-hmm. uh, that are very can be very experimental and very cool. So September Tapes was done on Digital Performer, for example, because I had to create, I didn't have any gear, so I had to create all of these loops of drones and things using that software, and it's very easy to do that. So there's that piece. But for me, it's, it's mostly logic, putting together a template if the movie is 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 a movie with subject matter that's going to require a score that sounds consistent throughout in terms of instrumentation then I'll then I'll use a couple of different templates but generally I don't start that way I start thinking about you know uh, how I want the sound of this of the actual cue to sound and so mm-hmm. I do a tremendous amount of premixing uh, and I layer together libraries I'll play them uh, 2D, you know, all together, just to see how they all blend together. Uh, bef- and then I'll start composing, working that way. Uh, so it's, it, but it's always, a, it's always different libraries. It's never one specific library. It's, it's always a blend of things. And I spend a tremendous amount of time pre-mixing them because I can't sit down and write music when the samples sound terrible. <laughs> I can't, I can't do it. And so I spend it, I probably spend most of my time doing that. And the writing music is actually an afterthought. So you kind of, you build, a, you build up a template for the, the, the movie, the entire movie. And then 
yeah, build up your sounds, pre-mix them a bit, get them sounding good. Yeah, well, like, right. So I won't use this, uh, the thing about, let me go back on that a little bit. So I won't use a specific template for a movie. Uh, it, for example, if I'm using, a, if I'm writing an orchestral score and there's a certain quality of, of um, string sound that I want for like four different cues, I'll save that session as the string template session. But okay. that'll be it. You know, the rest of everything is written as, um, you know, it has to all sound, there has to be continuity in the score. So that's why I generally, when I write like four cues, I listen to them all together. Mm-hmm. I don't listen to just one and then go to the next. I listen to how they're all transitioning into each other. And if and if they need to blend more, then I go back into each session and I make that work. So yeah, I don't, I'm not too much into templates. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm more into sort of, I'm into consistency, but I'm also into having each cue be its own piece of music that can stand on its own if need sure. be. The template thing is, there's two very, very different schools of thoughts on templates. Just like with with music theory, I think I see it as the kind of yeah. tech equivalent. Like people think that theory means you do things in a exact way every single time, and people think the same with templates. And anyway, that's a whole a whole, a whole other discussion. Yeah, you know, I learned about that when I was um, I was uh, I uh, spent time when I was in an undergrad. I you know I had all these weird jobs, and one of those jobs was I was an art model actually. And I would watch all these painters paint, you know, and um, I just saw them making the biggest mess. Like, I mean, painters make a big mess. And <laughs> I use that as my my template. You know, I just, I just open up a whole bunch of things and I start sculpting right away with four or five different DAWs, you know, four or five different libraries in the, in the DAW. And I, and, and I don't make a value judgment against that. You know, I, I don't go through it and go, okay, now I'm gonna find, you know, what's the joke about clarinet players? Um, you know, how does a clarinet player um, uh, screw in a light bulb? You know, it has to be just the right light bulb, you know? <laughs> and, if, and if you're a reed player, so maybe you'll appreciate yeah. that. But, <laughs> but yeah, but you know, so I get, you know, my students will sometimes get really, you know, hung up on, on this whole template thing. And I'm just like, right. Just, just get yeah. get a, get a bunch of different things in there and just start messing around, mm-hmm. and um, yeah. So yeah, that's that's the whole template discussion, in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah, in a nutshell. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but then when you um, the way that, the way that you work in terms of like like you say pre mixing and getting the sounds and all together as you go. Yeah. Do you yeah. do you move to, at a point? Do you kind of stop the composing process and move into a proper like mixing and production process? Or do you ever find yourself that you get a bit lost with the mixing if, you, if you're working in that way? Yeah, I mix as I go. So like when I just, when I deliver a sketch, for example, to a director for review, the score is always going to be a little bit louder than it's going to be in the final mix. Mm-hmm. And it won't be the final mix of that particular cue, but it'll be a really great rough mix. So I mix as I go. I never wait till the end. Okay. Um, at the end, I'm basically doing adjustments, EQ adjustments and reverb adjustments and maybe adding like some mastering techniques to each cue uh, and doing stereo panning to allow for more dialogue in the middle. But that, I mean, it, it's pretty, I, it's, it's, it's half mixed by the time I start working, uh, you know, cause I, I just can't, I, I don't like waiting till the end to mix. I always, and that's one of the things I learned when I was at Berkeley was in the DAW environment, you could mix as you go, you know? Mm-hmm. 
And that makes the process so much more efficient in terms of having an outcome for me. And I, I know people who do, everybody does this differently and it's no value judgment, but I just, I have to have it sounding good while I'm working. So I'm, I'm pretty much mixing as I'm working. Um, just before we wrap up, I wanted to skip back to uh, something you said a long time ago in the conversation, but you, you, you joked that your professors used to say never to look for work uh, online. Yeah. So what advice <laughs> would you have for composers seeking work now then? Uh, editors, fine film editors. Editors, it, the, I think a lot of the, the big problem that a lot of film, see, when you're a film composer, you think that the film's all about your score. That's what, <laughs> uh, that's what a film composer's classic, that's why we're so weird um, compared to the rest of the filmmaking world. It's because we're on the caboose of a very long train. So we're in the last car, uh, unless they're thinking about music on the front end. So the people who are working with music the most are actually film editors. And I would approach film editors and get, start using your music as temp in projects they're working on. Mm -hmm. And that's a really great way to get an introduction to a director. And of course, there are director editors too, and I approach directors all the time. But I find that the director editor is actually quite good because they have this very technical understanding of how a film is made. And so when you're starting out, finding these folks who are actually making things, and they're usually film editors, and approaching them with a library of music that is representative of maybe not so many of the trends in film scoring, but that's a really good representation of who you are and, you know, and, and mixing those pieces up so that they evoke different moods is, is I think a really great way to start. Uh, and that's easy. It's easy now, you know, you have SoundCloud, you can just send SoundCloud links to people and they can hear stuff that way. Uh, you know, uh, I mean, that's, common, you know, people will say, do you have a SoundCloud page? I mean, I got a job where they said, we, we want to hire you, but we haven't heard your music. Can we hear it now? And I'm like, yeah, it's on SoundCloud. And they went to SoundCloud and they listened and they liked what they heard and they hired me. So, you know, it's, yeah, I mean, editors, editors, editors to start. And then, you know, as you meet more directors, I find the directors who are really interested in music are the directors who are making really good films. Mm -hmm. There's a yeah. lot of directors out there that just don't give it a second thought. And most of the time their films don't do very well. Mm -hmm. um, so, it, but the director, the problem with film, again, you're thinking score, score, score. And they're thinking, I got to make this movie. I've got to sell this movie. I've got to finance this movie. I've got to create this movie. I've got to, oh, and I've got to do the music too. Like mm -hmm. they have all of these other priorities that are, in some ways, much greater than that of the music. And I, and I think a lot of film composers are like, well, why don't they care about me, me? And it's like, well, you have to care about what they're doing and understand how that process works um, mm -hmm. of, of, of filmmaking to really understand how to connect with people in the film scoring, in the film universe. Mm -hmm. And have you found more success with, um, with meeting, that, meeting editors in person or do you, do you reach out to people online? Okay, so the, um, the, how, it, how the tree sort of grew for me. So September Tapes came out and this director in Colorado saw the movie. And this is a classic story of 
how it works. And this will answer your question, Johnny. So just let me elaborate <laughs> for a minute. This guy watched this movie in the movie theater. He was an up and coming director and he, and he was like, oh, I really like that score. And so he read the end credits of the film, wrote down one of the producers who happened to live in the same city he was living in, called this producer. And this producer called and, and said, who's this composer? I wanna meet this person. So then they called, um, the producer called me and then uh, we exchanged emails and we never even met. I sent him a CD in the mail. He used music from my library in another project he was doing. And he said, when I have a budget, I'll call you for another project. Um, a few years later, he called me, he had a budget, he hired me. And I never even met the director until he took a trip. Um, he took a trip to San Francisco and met me. And um, then we, you know, we talked and that was, we, but we'd already started working on his movie. And I never even met the editor. The editor, I just knew via email and, and talking. And so then when I finally met the editor, six months after we finished the movie, entirely remotely, and then we worked on the last campaign, Saving Face together, and we never even physically got together. It was all done virtually. And our joke, and the only time we met was at the Oscars when we got <laughs> nominated. And our joke was like, oh, if this is the only time we get to meet at the Oscars, that's not a bad time to meet, I guess. <laughs> so, you know, I, I've had virtual, very distant relationships with, um, I mean, I've worked remotely on most of my films uh, One, and it's all done the way that we're in the pandemic mode right now, you yeah, know, yeah. which is weird, which isn't so weird for me because I've been working remotely for so long. Sure. Um, you know, I'm, ho I'm actually hoping that this facilitates the, um, you know, for uh, new composers, I hope this facilitates the idea that, you know, you don't necessarily have to be in the same physical space, mm -hmm. at, you know, with people looking over your shoulder, because if you're good at what you do, you can be anywhere and do this. You don't have to be in LA, you don't have to be in New York, you can be anywhere. So yeah, I don't, I don't physically meet that many people. Um, I do like for meetings and spotting sessions, but then even now we're doing that on Zoom, we're doing a lot of spotting sessions on Zoom right now. It's the exact answer I was looking for. People, people want to know how to get into the industry, and it's like it's with everybody. It's just not. It's, there's no clear cut path, so it's just great to hear all the different ways that people go about doing it. Yeah, well, I think you know, in a Hollywood party, I always know where the sound and composer people are. They're in the corner of the room, not talking to anybody, <laughs> because their because their social intelligence isn't very good. So that that's one thing that I really would strongly recommend to people trying to get into the industry is the industry is a personality driven business and uh, you need to you need to know how to talk to people and you need to know how to listen to you know a lot of composers are like what do i say to a director said don't say anything ask them a question about their film and they'll talk your ear off yeah. for 2 hours about what they're doing and just you know either be interested or feign interest in mm -hmm. what they're doing. And you'll, that's what you need to do. Um, you know, it's a, it's a listening kind of a job. It's not as, it's, you know, cause they don't know what you do. They don't, they're not interested. They're interested in your music, but, but if you start talking about, well, you know, I use, was using this half diminished chord on this part of your film and it's just, you know, their <laughs> eyes glaze over and they just fall <laughs> yeah. over and, and they just don't care. And they're like, oh, there's another weirdo. You know, so you, it's it's social intelligence, and it's really understanding how to listen to what, how these people are talking about their film. 
one of my favorite quotations ever is from Dale Carnegie in his How to Win Friends and Influence book. And it says, um, you can make more friends in two months by being genuinely interested in people than you can in two years by trying to get people interested in you. Yeah, no, absolutely. It, you know, it, it's better to be, um, it's better to understand than be understood. You know, I mean, it, it's, it's, and, uh, you know, it's never the best composer who gets the job. It's the one that people find easiest to work with. I always find that to be the case. Like people are like, you're so easy to work with. And I mean, they don't know what it's like when I hang up the phone and I yell at the wall because it's <laughs> such a frustrating process or, you know, you know, my wife who's also a composer, you know, has to hear me, you know, ranting and raving about some crazy note I got from a director. That's not crazy. It's just hard to do. And it's, and it's managing kind of frustration levels and managing rejection and managing the emotional side of this, which is really what's, um, what a lot of people have trouble with. Uh, mm -hmm. it's, it's not for, you got to have a thick skin. Mm -hmm. um, that's, I will say that, uh, <laughs> you got to have a thick skin. Well, this has been an absolutely awesome um, chat, full of so much information. I always wrap things up with what would be your one piece of advice for someone trying to get started as a film composer? Write as much music as humanly possible. I, I find that a lot of composers, young composers don't write enough music. You write, write, write. And eventually if you write 500 pieces of music, that's one every day for a little over a year, 30 or 40 of those pieces will actually be good. <laughs> and then you'll be able to approach people. It, it's be as prolific as humanly possible and right out of your comfort zone. You know, if you're watching Netflix and you hear this piece of music and you're like, oh, that's cool. Well, do you have a piece of music that sounds like that or no? Well, if you don't, open up your DAW while you're watching Netflix and write something that's like that. Uh, that's how this works, you know, that's my nice. advice. Nice, amazing. Well, so thank you so much once again, Gennad, for being on the show. Really, really appreciate having you here. It was a pleasure and it, it, I'm, I'm humbled to be asked. Thank you so much, Johnny. <laughs> Take care. I hope you loved that episode as much as I loved recording it. Go ahead and find Gunnard on Twitter at Gunnard Debose. That's D-O-B-O-Z-E. Or check out his site at GunnardDebose.com. Let me know what you thought of the episode. Email me at johnny at soundtrack.academy. And if you enjoy the episodes, I'd love for you to leave a review. I'll even give you a shout out in a future episode. Don't forget to sign up to the free newsletter by visiting soundtrack.academy newsletter. And that's all from me this week. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful rest of your day.